0: Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers,
1: Storymakers show. show. And today on Storymakers, what's going on? Well, we're going to talk about flawed characters. But first, let's talk about us <laughs> and what we are working on. Okay. What are you working on? Well, you know, I went back to an old journal where I had done some free writing about a character. I'd been delaying doing this. I'd been putting it off, and um, the book had been sort of noodling along in my imagination but i hadn't gone back to this writing and so i started dictating the writing into a word doc mm-hmm. and um as i mentioned to you earlier i quite liked it i was yes. like oh i like this so i feel um and you know i'm in this period of of deciding what to work on so, um, yeah, when is that due date? Well, it was, it was two weeks ago, Sunday that I was assigned it. So, and I was assigned to take no more, no less than two weeks. So I think Sunday bum, bum, bum. Um, or Saturday, depending on how you count your two weeks. Right. But let's say Sunday. Cause I didn't, cause I got it on Sunday. Okay. I think point. that's fair. Anyway. So, um, but I'm leaning now very much towards this being my new project. Mm-hmm. And then, um, there's some stuff I'm wanting to figure out about my sort of last finished project and then I have one in between that I'm waiting to get notes on. So. Okay. Lots lots of juggling, but good, good good stuff. How about you? Well, um, you know, right now
0: this week has been sort of a crazy week transitioning to in person and yeah, in person um, middle school teaching. And so I've been kind Hi. of, you know, in a move that surprises no one. I've been bouncing around. <laughs> <laughs> And in that bouncing, I've been looking at and thinking about learning, as one does. And, you know, so I'm trying to think about this piece of, of my own process. I think one of the things that I have always been sort of inspired by, by when I am doing something is I learn something and I want to put it back out into the world in some way. And, um, you know, being a parent, being in a pandemic, having a small business... I have a lot of different little things that are all over the place. And so how do I think about holding on to ideas for one, right? But also, is there a way to sort of pull back out so that I can start looking at connections between ideas. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you will have that very organic sense, right? You're reading book after book in some kind of area, and then maybe you switch the area you've been focusing on. And then suddenly there's a thing that you're like, Oh, that's so interesting. They're talking about this in this context and they're talking about it in this context as well. What is that link? Right. Or, you know, so you do that, but how does one intentionally have a process by which you can follow your interests, capture whatever notes you've been making about it, and then draw back and start looking for those relationships. And I think about Kenneth Atchity's uh A writer's time, right? Mm -hmm. That's his book, yeah. So he does this whole thing, right, where you go through the library because he wrote it a long time ago. (laughs) And you go through the library, right, and you have these index cards and you have these processes and you grab these things and you just kind of let yourself have this exploration phase. So thinking about just in the world we live in now, what does that exploration phase actually look like? And can you make a process where, uh, you can tie things together across time so that you can say like, you know, oh, I vaguely remember this thing. How do I remember where everything is? Because I literally, I mean, you joke about this, but it's like I get notebooks and I lose the notebooks and uh, I get a phone, I lose the phone. (laughs) So there's just, you know, how does someone like me create a system that is flexible enough to deal with my, hodgepodgey but then constrained enough that I can pull from it like one would
1: a database, right? Mm, Interesting. That sounds fruitful. Maybe, maybe it's just something I'm thinking about. Well, that's okay too. Um, All right. So um, here comes this question and the question is worded thusly. What is the secret to developing flawed characters that the reader still wants to invest in? And one reason this caught my attention in when we were thinking about today's podcast is because I just finished listening to the 20-plus hours of The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch. And this character, somehow, I mean, I felt utterly compelled by it, for whatever mm-hmm. that's worth. At the same time that I was utterly compelled by by him, you know, he's he's sort of a jerk he's an egotist um he is really wrong i think about like mm. in the choices he makes and in his view of things there's like a little moment when i started to think is he right but even so his behavior was pretty atrocious and i think um it, it hasn't aged well i'm sure right like things right where you look at like but i don't think it was ever kind of glorious or heroic um and and yet you know and yet at times he'll say, like, like, he's writing this, you know, he's, it's it's very overtly being written as sort of a, a journal slash a memoir in, in his retirement. So he'll say, like, what an egotist I must look like in these pages, you know, looking back at mm-hmm. these pages and stuff. So, And that's really helpful in a way, because you're, you're like, yeah, but at least you're not like, yeah, and you don't even see it. Mm. You're kind of like, oh, yeah, and you're noticing.
0: So you think that people are easier to like when they're at least self-reflective?
1: I think so. I think self-reflection is a virtue until it, of course, becomes yet more narcissistic. I suppose. Uh huh. Um, do you do you think people are more sympathetic if they're self-reflective?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, we want people to grow, right? So if he's doing us, kind of looking back
1: on who I was and the choices I made, then. But also, like you, for example, use humor mm-hmm. and self-depreciating humor as a sort of way to go through life, right? Mm-hmm. You're like and I think there's a, that's another sort of okay, I am this way, but I'm funny about it. Do you know what I mean? I mean it
0: yeah, so the but let's, you know, the question that this person had is about developing characters.
1: What was the exact framework Characters that are not... About flawed characters? Flawed the, question, character. the question was about flawed characters. What is the secret? Secret, so you have to find the secret mm-hmm. here. To developing flawed characters that the reader still wants to invest in.
0: Okay. So let's, you know, one of the things I think about with this is every character is flawed. Right? So there is no non-flawed character. Otherwise, you're really bored. I mean, it's one of the things that makes... Superman is really susceptible to being really boring (laughs) because he's,
1: you know, a humble, hardworking. I mean, Clark Kent, because he has a secret is actually more interesting and he's, he's sort of bumbling and awkward and has a secret. So he's actually probably much. And in fact, but he probably, he has the same actual physique just except for glasses. Right. So he's probably the much, the better. So I think
0: that like when hearing that question, Like every character is flawed. And like people, I guess, you know, my first response to that is not only is every character flawed, but not everyone's going to like even the characters you want your readers to like. So there's a way in which it's like, okay, I we're talking humbert humbert here how do we cross a bigger line because some people are just not going to like your characters some people don't are even not going to yeah. care
1: i don't right? know if and i don't even know if that's really the right question because what you really want is that your reader can't look away like so so with this with the see the sea part of some of it is like a car crash where you're just like oh, what's going on there why why are you doing that why are you, oh my gosh and you're, but you just you know you're you're kind of rubbernecking it because what the heck, right? right? So as opposed to the people who are going about their business shopping in the town or whatever.
0: Right. So I think that maybe, you know, we talk about these characters who are relatable in some way. I think that's the thing that I always hear. Like for myself, I don't know. Like I I have found myself having written things that I adored the character, even though they were, you know, hard or, you know, mean or whatever, but I liked who that character was and have other people come back to me and say like, I did not like this character. And I just think that it's important to know, first of all, and to accept that even the ones that are, you know, quote unquote, likable are not going to be liked by everyone. So you really have to kind of define your terms,
1: Right. So I think that's the first thing about this question. And actually I would even start with the secret. What's the secret? Because I actually think that, you know, and I I think I'm the first one to be guilty of this, but I think sometimes it feels as if all of these things are very subtle and very kind of secretive and complex Mm -hmm. and whatever. And really it's like, I've just been thinking about what do you like when you like somebody, you know what I mean? Like, like, and I think humor is often one of the things I, I really like and, a, and a certain kind of um, sort of a self depreciation, but like I've, I've seen my friend, Kathy, who has four children and is somehow <laughs> always like kind of graceful and, and funny in, right. right. It's like, how, how, and, um and actually I think you're, you know, really like that. And, and so I think, when I think about real life people like that, there's some way in which um, they're both, like, really have all these qualities and are really wonderful, but don't 100% know it, <laughs> but somehow move through the world. But even that's like a cultural thing. Like what?
0: Right? I, you know, I think there the are... The not knowing? Well, no. I mean, I think what's interesting is, like, I think there are weird cultural messages in the U.S., About you need to be the best in the world at something, but you kind of look like an asshole if you're standing up saying, I'm right. Now, some people, half our country, really responds to that behavior, but the other half is like, No, no, we like Clark
1: Kent. We do not like. Superman. We don't want, I mean, that's like kind well, Superman, of... Superman, if Superman was saying I am really strong and I can fly, but actually wasn't strong and couldn't fly, was just like a bully who jumped a lot, then that would be insufferable. But interesting, maybe. I mean, <laughs> you can't... Me fly! I mean, I think there were a lot of people who couldn't walk away from some of our recent anti-heroes. Couldn't right. look away. But I think that, you know, so again,
0: there's looking away, there's connecting, there's liking. These are all very Rooting for.
1: Things, rooting for. I mean, um, I definitely like what this guy was like, please, please see this differently. Like, please stop alienating the wrong people and pursuing, you know, the other wrong people, like, like making the, you know what I mean? Like, like the people he was alienating, I wanted him to see, you know, loved him and connect, you know, that he loved them mm-hmm. even. He couldn't even see kind of whom he loved. Like there's this wonderful conversation he has with his cousin. And he's known his cousin all his life, and they were both only children. So, but he has this very sort of prickly relationship. I mean, the cousin's family, you know, the, the the two fathers were brothers, and the cousin's family was more much more wealthy and sort of successful and all of this. And he's always had this very prickly relationship with his cousin. But in fact, you start to see that his cousin is sort of this mainstay for him and is sort Mm -hmm. of really lovely and and then and then he ends up being more successful than his cousin which is very pleasing to him right sort of on this level and um And they have this, and so then, okay, so then the book is about him being totally obsessed with his childhood sweetheart, who is like now long married to somebody else, but he, and he's found her after all these years and is sort of insisting that their love is, you know, is much better and that her marriage isn't happy and that he, she should come away with him or whatever. And at some point he's having a conversation with the cousin about how important like people from your childhood are and how he, and how the cousin just can't imagine like what it's like to have somebody you've known since childhood and how important they are to you and all of this. And you're thinking, your cousin is that person to you and you're that person to him and you're just not seeing it because you're just hooked on this girl who dumped you right, when right. you were 18. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's in one of those moments of subtext being very close to the surface and yet our narrator like can't break through it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and, it's, and and in the end, it's got this very long Danny and it's sort of him trying to figure out, like, who was really the love of his life? If it wasn't really this person, who was it really? Because he's had this story his whole life that it was this person, and now he thinks maybe it's this person. And, and in some ways, you still I still think it's sort of the cousin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so how does that relate to the question? So very flawed character, frustratingly flawed character. Character, um, you know, th- there's a lot of talk now about the unreliable narrator, but I think there's a way in which... Um, obviously anybody who's lodged in their own point of view is, is unreliable in terms of giving us the whole, the full picture. Mm-hmm. Here's this first person narrator. I mean, he's literally journaling. Right. And yet you can see around him so much and you can see, you know, which I think is fascinating. Right. So do I like him? I mean, I try, I want to like him. I mostly don't really like him. I don't like his choices, but, um, but there are not, there are moments that are sort of where I feel, I definitely feel sympathetic for him. I definitely really desperately want him to make different choices. Um, I look for like any moment where he's sympathetic, like mm-hmm. acknowledging that he's an egotist. I, I'm like, yay, look at that. Right? I think
0: this kind of goes, I, I'm being reminded of Notes from Underground.
1: Mm-hmm, which I've not read.
0: And, you know, that's not a very likable
1: narrator. Um, and... You know, what is he is, not very likable or is he like horrific? <laughs> I mean, again, haven't read it, but but:
0: um, You know, I was appalled by him, but I think the, the thing that strikes me, though, is there's actually another big underlying question here, which is, for your audience, why do they read?
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: if your audience is an audience of people who read to escape into a world of pleasure and vacation then you have to think okay well what is it that they could forgive right Mm. so in a romance novel you might have a you know unsympathetic character who just needs to find the right person
1: right well I, I mentioned that I read that like very, like fluffy romance. I'm not fluffy, but you know, it's just it was a romance. It was like a pure romance called the proposal. and I'll put it in the show notes. but um, and it was like they just couldn't see that they were perfect for each other. And, you know, there were little circumstances like they met because, you know, her ex-boyfriend was proposing to her in this sort of horrifically public way. and the, and then he and his sister rescued her and whatever. But it was like they were really deeply perfect. There was no real obstacle except that they were each determined not to be in a serious relationship. And so you were just kind of, enjoying their like incredible chemistry, their great cooking together, how actually supportive they were of each other and their families by accident, because they certainly weren't meaning to have that kind of relationship. And it was like, and it was kind of a really great mid pandemic book where it was just like, everything's really okay. And as soon as they can just recognize that they've each met the like completely perfect person and who in every way is perfect for them. They can live happily ever after, right? Right. And we're just waiting for that. It was enough tension in that moment. (laughs) So then the secret, I think,
0: you know, and Blake Snyder talks about this, right? That's, I mean, that's the exact title of his book, Save the Cat, right? You have these characters and you have to see them in some way that your either moviegoer or reader values. So in something like... uh, in Save the Guy, he literally talks about like you have this person who does this like terrible thing. What is the moment where we build empathy for that person? So they do one thing good and then we see them as human. And oftentimes that's going to be caring for something that's not human. Like a lot of times it's like people who are uh, nice to animals, right? Or, um, that kind of thing. So for your audience. Love plants. I, you know, I don't know that plants resonate as much.
1: But I bet if somebody was like awkward in all these ways, but had this incredible relationship with their plant, and then, you know, you could see if a plant was like dying, that they were devastated and right. they were talking to their plants. I mean, I think you could do it with, it's a MacGuffin. Save the MacGuffin. No, the MacGuffin is not that. Well, I know that, but I'm saying the <laughs> MacGuffin is a stand-in thing for that creates suspense, right? But you don't have to know what right. it is. So what I'm saying is, save the MacGuffin is like you don't. Ha- it doesn't have to be a cat you feel specific sympathy for. It has to be that no, they, no that but they we see care them, about and, and so self sacrifice. And so Blake
0: Snyder's actual argument is that it doesn't actually have to even be that. Like we can see them caring for something, which makes us more empathetic towards them because we see that they have a vulnerability in that caring, but we also can see them being really good at what they do. Like we Mm. have a certain amount of wish fulfillment when we watch ace lawyers outwit somebody or when we watch, uh, someone who's making a terrible mistake, uh, in their family, be absolutely dominant in a business situation especially
1: right? i would say it, it, like one of those things i would say if, if somebody underestimates them and then they get to get to like come out like be an underdog right. a little bit and come out from under like if you saw them if you saw them seeming really disorganized and whatever and they step into the situation and everybody's like rolling their eyes and you sort of know they're kind of a mess and then and then they like turn it around and they're like brilliant mm-hmm. at it and nobody you know something like that or somebody disses them or doesn't expect them to be good at it and they you know
0: right so essentially it's the The way that you make unlikable characters or flawed characters relatable
1: is, is, is
0: they are really different things. But if you're going to say like, okay, I have a character that I'm worried that people won't be able to connect with. What are the things that people actually connect to? Are you, are you giving some aspect of wish fulfillment? People loved Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs because he was really smart and he was smart in a way that was like, whatever. But he also
1: didn't deny that he was a freaking cannibal. But what I will say what was, I, I think, um, for example, he didn't want to eat Jodie Foster's character. Yeah, no, that helped. So he wanted to help her. Well, he, I mean, No, he, no, he didn't want to help her. Well, he wanted to get help himself. But I think, I, you know, I mean, he, he pushed her in these ways, these psych- psych- psychological ways that I think were meant to kind of... Um, I mean, that I think we're part of her growth arc, part of her becoming someone who could kick No, absolutely, kick but that's what an antagonist does. Mm. So. Wh- <laughs> like, not in my family. <laughs> that's called parenting. <laughs>
0: um, so, but if you look at Silence of the Lambs, and I'll be honest, I haven't read the book, so I'm just referring just to what film. I can remember from the film from a billion years ago. From the thi- ago. film theater. But remember, his whole goal is to get out of prison.
1: right and this is a person who preys on humans. Well, and the first way he the first way he does it is he he draws her sympathy, like his desire for a window. He draws her sympathy out. Of, so and and I think he draws our sympathy. Oh my gosh, he wants a window. Like who isn't going to feel for mm-hmm. someone who wants a window? So we feel sympathetic for him until we realize it was a trick. I mean, right. at the same time it was a trick, but I don't even think it wasn't true in the sense that he's desperate to get out, right? And so the human, of who wouldn't be desperate to get out, right? And so the human desire for a window, for escape, for freedom is relatable, even in a cannibal. Yeah. But he also has, you know, the drawing.
0: I mean, he's really good at a lot of things, Mm -hmm. right? And so... I think the reason people like Hannibal Lecter is not just because oh he wants a window. But he's like, you know what? Yeah, I eat people to owning your owning your so flaw. He owns his his flaw. I didn't even and think And yeah. I think he's really good at what he does, not just being a cannibal, right? <laughs> like wasn't he a psychologist or something? Right, or a psychiatrist in, or something. Psychiatrist? He's very like psychologically
1: ca- astute. So he
0: is very psychologically astute. And so I think that's, you know, so the two pieces for how to like Hannibal Lecter are that he's someone who kind of is a wish fulfillment for a lot of us. I want to be that smart. I want to be able to draw the Duomo. I want to, you know, from memory. And I want to have that kind of, you know, intense insight into humans and,
1: um... Well, you were talking yeah. in the last episode about wanting to be one of those people who could be like, I'm first and I'm entitled and whatever. I mean, having mm-hmm. sometimes, was looking at all of that and kind of sometimes having a small envy for that kind of level of entitlement. And right. maybe, maybe even you have that envy for cannibalism. No, no, I do <laughs> not, not. literal cannibalism, but the, the entitlement of No, but I mean, but, well, what I mean though, is
0: that he represents wish fulfillment about the human capacity for learning, right? How smart can you be? He's a wish fulfillment representation of that. So I think that's just to be a nutshell. If you're working with characters, what are the wishes that your audience has? How can you fulfill those through the, the skills and strengths, the positives of your
1: challenging character? So that might be another way. So let's recap. Um, one of the things is that flaw... Is 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 important that we don't and we, that and perfect characters are not more likable. In fact, they're probably well, significantly less, less likable, and they're much less authentic. Mm-hmm. Because you know, other than you, dear listener, who do we know that is perfect? <laughs> so that's so. So flaw is necessary, and of course, we haven't touched on this, but I will just add here that I think story is is very much about. The overcoming of flaws. And that John Truby has the great question. Or even just coming to terms. Right. Coming to terms with or overcoming. And John Truby has the great question, what is your character wrong about mm-hmm. at the beginning of your story? And I think that's essential. So your character has to be wrong about something really in order to grow and learn and all of that. Otherwise, they're going to grow and learn something you don't want them to learn. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So so then we talked about um, some other things. Uh, humor. And self-depreciation and self-reflection. And then we also talked about skill, Mm -hmm. um, being good at something, being intelligent. And within that, we also talked about sometimes surprising expectations or coming as being an underdog who turns out to have a surprising skill. And that was my addition to your Mm -hmm. uh, kind of people being good at things or being really smart or being, you know, those sort of things. And, um, which I actually described as being sort of a wish fulfillment uh for your audience. Right.
0: Absolutely, and it doesn't have to be like a skill. I mean, like there's those moments when, uh, you know, you see someone do something you wish you could do,
1: right? But I still think that being underestimated is such a. I'm not saying you're wrong. This is a yes and part of that. Yeah, this is a yes and, and I'm yes anding you too. Yes and, um, so, um, enjoy creating your flawed character, who people will either love or not be able to look away from mm-hmm. or some, uh, something else that will hook them in. Mm-hmm. And it's not a secret, right? Yes. It's not a secret. I, I will say we didn't touch on some other things that might help, although I think they're like like voice, which is part of self-reflection sometimes mm-hmm. um, and part Maybe, of humor.
0: Yeah. I think we could definitely break it down into more concrete little steps. We're definitely at a higher level Theoretical thing because we don't have visuals
1: yet. <laughs> I think like, if, if, you if had, people were looking at us, we would be able to somehow get. I think more that if specific. we were doing
0: some kind of thing, we could say, like, oh, here's an example from a scene where a character does a thing and we're being, you know, character introductions. How are they introduced? Uh, you know, Columbo, again, talking about that lowered expectations. Columbo always entered a scene where he was underestimated by the bad guys. Because of his, you know, sort of absent-minded approach, his rumpled coat, people would underestimate him, but of course he would end up being the smartest rumpled guy in the room. So
1: <laughs> so we hope that helped you think about flawed characters and it is time for... Steal This. Amateur Poets Borrow. Professional Poets Steal. What have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to take and make your own?
0: Well, uh, as I mentioned, I've been doing a lot of thinking about learning recently. And one of the things I want to take and make my own is really just a system. I keep working on this. I, you know, I fight systems, so I keep wanting them, but then I fight them. I don't know. I don't know. I may Mm. just end up dying at some point. Having never really <laughs> completed any particular system, right? I you know, like I'm not the person who writes every day. I'm not the person who does whatever. And I think that what I keep, I'm about to just kind of step back from my theory that I should do this. I was about to say I'm going to grab this system. I've been watching <laughs> these people and doing these things. It's like, wait a minute. never mind. you know,
1: you said something the other day that I thought was so insightful. and I don't know where it came from, but it was about the being a hunter. Like the hunter gatherer. Oh, right, right. Do you remember a hunter that? in
0: a farmer's world. There was a book title. I haven't read the uh, book. I have <laughs> no idea about it.
1: But the thing I do well, right? A is hunter in a farmer's is that the title. Yes. Hunter and a farmer's because because and we know that there's this study where ADHD people in a recently transferred from uh, nomadic to like agrarian, right? Like in mm. a, a modern day transfer that, yeah. and and seeing that the people who lived in the nomadic world and could you know had sort of ADHD-like symptoms were thriving, which they me- measured by body weight. Right, because weight. with
0: hyper-focused, you're like, you know what? I need to make tools, whatever, and I'm never going to plan for it. But oh my gosh, we're going hunting tomorrow. I need to focus for seven hours right now <laughs> to make all the tools we need. Right. And then I'm going to go wander. I don't even know where our house is, but that's okay because look-
1: that is a really pretty tree. Or you're tracking, you know, the mastodon. Or, or whatever. you're tracking
0: the mastodon. I mean, there's a lot of things. So about you're, the you way can I hyper focus,
1: things. and that's how you clean the garage too. Like you'll just be cleaning the garage for like eight hours at a time, right? And I've learned mm. not to be like, "Could you do this tomorrow?" Because no,
0: <laughs> but you can do it
1: right now for like ten hours in a row. I wonder if that could be your system. No.
0: And here's why. (laughs) Because I have day to day stuff. And it's, you know, the truth is, I have a really hard time. I have a really hard time. I have a bunch of different things that I'm doing, because I need six things to make me feel balanced in the world. And at the same time, I have commitments to, you know, checking on the kids and, you know, the different things that we do in the house. And I find it really hard to balance all the things. Yeah. Because honestly, like if I were like, great, I have no responsibilities and who has that? Nobody. But if I had no responsibilities and I could just focus on something, that's what I would do. Right. I would do that one thing for a chunk of time. And, um, and I do that over and over and over again, but I never seem to be able to set aside the time to do that. So maybe what I want to steal is Jung's you know, non-electrical,
1: waterless castle by the lake? <laughs> I'd say steal it, literally. Okay, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, we're going to go take it over. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to swim there, but then, you know, across the ocean. But. Okay, how about you? All right, well, I'm going to return to the Sea the Sea, which I stole from last week, but um, but this time I want to steal this wonderful way in which um, the character was able to discuss sort of what was going on and and in this in this way that felt very realistic to me where he was both like sort of in his illusion but also you know like kind of able to to at least argue about the reality of his illusion and all of that so it was it ended up feeling very realistic to me in terms of how people muddle along and kind of you know get are stubbornly stuck on something but also can evaluate it what year was that written I do not know I will I I don't know. I'll put the link in the show notes. You can ask Siri. Hey, Siri, what year was The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch written?
0: The Sea. The Sea was published in 1978.
1: Interesting. Okay. (laughs) All right, everybody. Go do your own thing. Flawed and perfect. Perfect.